What Mad Universe is part of the Tokyo Beat Podcast Network. Content warning. Orientalism, blood sports, and the kill of karate. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying canopy of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What mad universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Every few seconds there was a furious exchange of blows and parries. Suddenly, the lighter of the two figures aimed a vicious slash at his heavier opponent's left side. The larger man whipped his sword swiftly across the front of his body and easily parried it. Instantly, his attacker twisted his wrist through a half circle. The hook at the end of the blade spun around and caught the hook of the opponent's weapon. The lighter man jerked back his sword arm viciously, dragging his opponent's blade with it. His heavy antagonist was spun halfway around. Before he could recover, the thick, blunt blade of his attacker's knife slammed into the lacquer covering in the middle of his back. The heavy man grunted. Then he lowered his sword and laughed. His voice was deep and pleasant. Good work, Jonathan. I'm dead. Hooked like a flounder. Jonathan smiled delightedly. When his father gave a compliment, it really meant something. I was trying to figure out last night, Dad, why they put hooks on these swords at all. I was swinging mine around in a room, thinking there must be some very tricky use for the hook to make up for the fact that it made the sword useless for thrusting. He held up the hooked blade, and for the hundredth time wondered what the design on the blade meant. A beautifully damascened horseman thrusting a lance through a hanging ring. Jonathan looked at his father. With an ordinary saber, you can't pull at your opponent. You can only thrust at him or cut. The hook could be for jerking the other fellow off balance so you could stab him with your knife. He rotated his wrist, and the hook revolved in a vicious circle. Look, Dad, no one is afraid of being hooked with a sword. A man with this type of weapon could take an ordinary opponent terribly by surprise. Jonathan looked slyly at his father. The way I did you. He turned to his father and tried his best to look innocent. It was awfully hard to fool the old man. I thought of another thing, Dad, too. If a small country, which was surrounded by powerful neighbors, trained their soldiers to use a strange weapon like this hooked sword, it would give them a tremendous military advantage. Like having a secret weapon. Don't you think so? From the Terrible Game, 1957, by Dan Tyler Moore. Hello, welcome as always to What Mad Universe, uh, the podcast about pulp and the origins of genre fiction. I'm Adam Prosser, with me is Philip Rice. Hello. And today we're looking at uh, a real uh, standard issue pulp uh, adventure story from the mid-50s, The Terrible Game, uh, about a a battle to the death in a lost country that inspired uh, a terrible movie that you may have heard of. (laughs) And we'll be talking about that when we get back right after this. Okay, we're back. Um, Yeah, so today we're looking at The Terrible Game, uh, which was a a 1950s pulp novel. And uh, I find this really interesting because it's 
it sort of sits to me at the intersection of a lot of different uh, pulp stories. Um, you know, you've got the sort of uh, swashbuckling adventure, which I tend to associate, like the classic swashbuckling adventure, I tend to associate with pre uh, World War II stuff. But then it's also got spy geopolitics stuff, which is kind of the spy, the Cold War era uh, spy adventure stuff. And then there's the um, there's also the sort of uh, the warrior credo stuff, which I know started to take over pulp in like the late sixties and the late seventies. Um, and, uh, <laughs> arguably to this day, you could even put like Tom Clancy in that category. Um, uh, and, uh, you, what, what did you think of this book, uh, Philip? Um, okay. Well, I think we should address the elephant in the room. The, uh, <laughs> The the gymnastic karate elephant. Um, <laughs> yeah. This uh, book was the basis for the uh, 1984 movie Gymkata. Sorry, 85. Right. Um, Gymkata, whose uh, the slogan on the poster, um, uh, the skill of gymnastics, the kill of karate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, it was the basis for Gymkata the way that uh, Nothing Lasts Forever is the basis for Die Hard. Uh, it went through some pretty uh, drastic shifts on the way to the screen, I would say. Yeah. But uh, yes, so, technically so it is the, ex- the, material, yeah. the, the source material for that movie. Yeah, so that movie exists because uh, gymnast uh, Kurt Thomas, uh, who was uh, hopeful to win in the uh, 1980 Olympics... Um, didn't get to compete because the Americans boycotted it that that year. Um, so uh, I guess they they wanted to make like Hollywood thought, you know, we have this guy, he's he's not doing anything, so we'll make him an action hero. He can you know do his own stunts and stuff. <laughs> that's so, how most action heroes are born. We got this guy, he's not doing anything. I think that's how <laughs> Steven Seagal got started. I mean, yeah, uh, <laughs> but. Um, I mean, I guess that's how... I, I don't have, like, inside information on, on what their... Uh, why they decided to make Kirk Thomas uh, uh, an action hero, but uh, they tried it, by yep. gum. They sure um, tried. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jim Cotta is a uh, infamous So Bad It's Good movie. It's like one of those... Like, uh, an MST3K, you know, Mystery Science Theater 3000 style thing. No, it was never actually covered on the original show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those movies they probably should have covered at some point. <laughs> now, I gotta say, there are definitely some moments that are, like, howlers. Uh, and the whole... But what's really, like, what makes it a, quote, bad, so bad it's good movie is really the premise. And the fact that they decided that uh, they were going to cast this gymnast, who is... Like he's charismatic and he has skills, obviously, um, and make but he's it about not an actor. Like he's not an actor, no. But like, I mean, that hasn't stopped a lot of people. Um, like, it's worth noting that Hollywood has does have a history of trying to turn athletes into uh, actors. I mean, uh, Buster Crab, uh, who played Tarzan, was a was a swimmer, uh, and he w- became a very successful. Uh, uh, no, sorry, Buster Crab was Flash Gordon. Um, uh, Johnny Weissmuller was a was a, sw- uh, a, a swimmer. Uh, he played Tarzan. That, so that was a traditional thing for a while. Someone who was an Olympic athlete or a, or a big star athlete uh, could become a, a hero. We all, we recently watched uh, Steel, starring Shaquille O'Neal. He definitely tried to have a movie career for a while. Um, uh, he's probably worse than Kurt Thomas at acting, <laughs> honestly. Um, yeah, um, just definitely. a black hole of charisma. Just. <laughs> 
It's actually funny that they never tried to make Muhammad Ali into a, a movie star because he had, again, he was a, incredibly charismatic. Uh, like, he definitely could have owned the screen. Anyway, for what... Maybe it, he didn't want to. I mean, yeah, that's... It, yeah, for, for all I know, he never bothered. But, like, yeah, I, like if you're going to pick an actor who could have become a popular uh, movie star, I feel like uh, that would have been an obvious choice. Anyway, um, so it's not completely out of the blue. I guess I guess there was just such a, like, I'm going to, without knowing the situation in 1980, I guess there was just such a lot of sympathy around uh, Kurt Thomas and this feeling of, like, national, like he was a beloved national figure, and they figured they would they would capitalize on that. That's all I can get. But then they, they but because it, it's an action movie and he's a gymnast, it was like, well, we have to develop a, a gymnastic style of action heroing, basically. <laughs> and that's where it gets very silly, unfortunately. Uh, or fortunately, because <laughs> yeah, it, that that's what makes the movie fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Like he he'll like he'll spin around on a on a bar that just happens to be in an alley, like hanging up high in an alley, and he'll spin around and kick people. Yeah. Um, and at, like at one point he kicks somebody who's like a civilian, so collateral gymkata damage. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and there's a pummel horse mis- mysteriously in the middle of a of a big set piece that he gets to use yeah. to kick people. You know, things like that. It just happens to be in the middle of this town, a thing that's shaped like a pummel horse and has yeah. no other reason to be there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like this, like, Turkish-style, like, medieval town. Yeah, uh, it's... Right. I mean, the the funny thing is, in some ways, it's... Like, again, there's some howler moments and things in some ways it's a competent enough movie it's just got such a bizarre premise that you can't take it seriously that's all um, oh and of course the the punchline it ends with uh you know him winning the the uh spoilers um yeah. and uh it, it has the um uh information on the screen that uh, he used is is the wish he uh granted to um uh, set up an outpost for the uh, U.S.'s Star Wars program. Yeah, exactly. So well, it's so, just like, yeah. It, yeah, the um, like a real version of the uh, the the meme I fell for about uh, uh, Rambo three having uh, yeah uh, dedicated de- to the Mujahideen. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, well, I mean the the politics of the that's it more or less in line with the politics of the book. Uh, in so, at least in some yeah. ways, it's a, there's a lot of like um, that didn't age well, um, <laughs> but uh, and that's uh, like just so that's where it is actually uh, like broadly in in the same uh, idea of the of the book, which is that it's about a guy who has to travel to this very remote Asian country that's still like it's very cut off. It doesn't allow outsiders um, or. It, very restricted in its allowance of outsiders uh in the movie it's anyone who travels to the to this uh nation which is called parmistan in the movie uh it's called baranulke in the uh in the book um but anyone who travels there has to uh like in the in the movie it's you can travel and to compete in this terrible game and whoever is uh successful gets to ask one wish of the con and it's basically anything you know that doesn't you know, undermine the con, you can, he will, and within his power, he will grant. And so, uh, Kurt Thomas's character is going there to, uh, you know, establish a foothold in the, because it's, it hasn't been, 
it's been resisting both the U.S. and and the Soviet Union, and it won't it won't uh, allow either of them to get a foothold in the country. So the idea is to use the wish to allow the the U.S. to get a foothold in the country. Uh, in the book, it goes a step further, and it's anyone who enters the country at all uh, is forced to compete in the in the terrible game, uh, as it's uh, as it's uh, sorry, uh, the terrible game of ought, as it's called, uh, uh, which means book. horse apparently. Yeah, apparently it's Turkish for horse. I'm I don't know Turkish. I'm not. I can't fact check this, but uh, it does seem like the author uh, knew enough about Turkey and some other stuff that I, I'll buy that. That it's yeah, like legitimate um, Turkish and so everything. After his post-war career involved uh, a project to build hotels in Turkey, so I assume he knew something about Turkey. Mm-hmm. And then it's although it's very clear that uh, Baron Ulke is actually a long way from Turkey, uh, but it, I guess it was settled. They're they're a little vague about that, but I guess it was settled by Turkish immigrants or something. So that's like ancient in ancient times, and that's why they speak. Tur- it's just a it, it's a convenient thing so that they can communicate with them by with, instead of having their own uh, language that no one would know because you know because of outsiders basically. Um, but yeah, and they've and it's this mountain ringed kingdom that has fought off outsiders for for thousands of years. So yeah, thanks to its geography, like you, it's un, virtually unconquerable. Uh, mm-hmm. Thanks to their um, geographical advantage, um, it's ringed uh, by the Black Mountains, filled with lightning, and there's like extra dense forests on the one approach that you can make. Presumably, yeah. you can get in, or no one would live there, but. Um, like it's very difficult, so especially for like a modern army to invade, as we see in the book. Um, yeah, yeah, and and it's called it's referred to as the Cyclone Country, uh, repeatedly throughout the book, which is interesting because I don't remember any cyclones, but um, like they, it's certainly there's storms uh, yeah. around the, the the country the whole time. Yeah. So yeah, um, uh, I've seen Jim Cotta a number of times. It's like one of my go-to, you know, so bad it's good movies. And uh, it always has that thing at the front based on a novel. (laughs) Right. Uh, The Terrible Game by uh, Dan Tyler Moore. And like, this is based on a novel? (laughs) And I've I've always been curious about that uh, ever since seeing Jim Cotta for the first time. And, uh, um, you know, I I had checked a few times online, you know, if it's buyable and like eBay sometimes carries it for like, you know, fifty bucks to like a hundred, you know, a few hundred bucks. Like it's, you know, I'm not going to pay that much. Um, uh, and I was uh, discussing this at one point, and a friend of the show, Charlotte Finn, suggested uh, we check archive.org, uh, which I hadn't even considered that it would be on there, but uh, she actually found found it on there. Um, so it can be. Uh, um, borrowed uh one person in the world at a time because they only have one copy uh as uh, me and adam found out uh Mm -hmm. only one of us could read it at a time yeah apparently uh and you you yeah you borrow it for an hour at a time and then you yeah it returns automatically and then yeah but you have like infinite borrows so it's not a problem right it's a i mean yeah the internet archive is has i mean i've used it numerous times for this uh this uh show so it's i do recommend it it's a it's a good resource 
Um, and yeah, like these, these old, old pulp novels that are basically forgotten, you know, it's very hard. I mean, you can find a copy on Amazon and they'll, they'll charge like $300 for it. You know, it's that kind of thing. This book Um, is not worth $300. (laughs) No, it is not. Um, I guess like what I would, I would describe this as, uh, like I, I said, it's sort of a very standard issue pulp. I mean, it's kind of the absolute median of like what you would think of as a pulp if you're at all familiar with pulp novels it's kind of like right in the center of that like it's got it's got most of what you would associate with a pulp novel from this particular time period as i say it kind of crosses over into different styles of pulp in some ways it kind of it's kind of at the intersection and it's very it's not it's not full on badly written but it's very perfunctorily written i guess i would yeah, say yeah it's this is the only novel this writer uh, wrote. Uh, he he did some other short stories, and he had a successful career doing like nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And he seemed to have an interesting like he did spy stuff during the uh, during the war, World War Two. Um, like he 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 actually participated in. He was a spy during World War Two. Yeah, yeah, he did stuff in uh, in Cairo and. Um, uh, <clears throat> Uh, he was a deputy to the head of the uh, economic mission to the Middle East. Mm. Um, he was, uh, uh, had, was a regional chief for the OSS um, in North Africa. Um, yeah, uh, like uh, legitimate spy stuff. Hmm. Interesting. Well, see, that, that kind of makes sense because, I mean, that's Ian Fleming as well. And I guess everyone saw, looked at Ian Fleming's career and went, oh, wow, I can write... I can write novels based on my own experiences and, you know, and of course this is a generation coming out of World War II, so a lot of people had had at least tangentially interesting enough experiences to spin up into a fictional book uh, that could be this kind of pulp thing. Oh, and, uh, uh, and it says here he uh, foiled, a, he helped uh, foil an assassination of King George II of Greece. Interesting. And okay. he invented a hoist to airlift spies. So yeah. Um <laughs> Wait, wait, why do spies need a special hoist to airlift them? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it yeah. sounds impressive. He was also uh, friends with Elliot Ness. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, well, definitely had an interesting uh, life and career. It was It's like when we were talking about um, the author of uh, the uh, Instrumentality uh, series, uh, Cordwainer Smith. And, you know, he had all kinds of crazy history. And we already mentioned Ian, Ian Fleming. And, yeah, I mean, like interesting person why not write your biography instead of like again and again this is, well he did like he did yeah. do nonfiction. This oh, okay is, this all right. is one novel so fair yeah I, I don't know if he wrote like uh if his uh writing was um um biographical but or autobiographical but he he did do mostly nonfiction. it looks like oh, he okay. did um three short stories one of which was a shorter version of the terrible game that mm. was expanded into a novel. Right. Okay. Interesting. And so this is his only novel. Mm. Uh, and yeah, the the writing is very boilerplate. And he, he does this annoying thing of like ending a sentence with like a sentence fragment that's vaguely connected to it. Yeah. Have to keep going. What, what's, yeah. It's fr- almost Frank Miller-esque in some yeah. ways. Like <laughs> um, M-dash. Um, yeah. You know, 
have to keep well, the, going. Or, the, yeah. the first, the opening line of this was not promising. It was, uh, the big mysterious looking Italian style house was located 15 miles outside Washington up the Potomac River. Like that, that's a very awkward sentence right off the bat. Um, like it's, it's, it's very much just sort of, you know, stumbling to include everything. And, and as he also like writes it with like very obvious twists being set up and then has the main character, like, like the main character goes to the, uh, like the, in the early, uh, parts of the, the novel, it's, uh, Jonathan, the main character is training with his dad and his dad is probably going to go, uh, participate like he's for reasons he doesn't know, but it's because his father's going to go participate in the, the terrible game uh for 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 the the sake of america his dad has a you know his dad is a military intelligence guy and um jonathan's like a a college student but he's like on the his family he knows his family history so he might get into that as well um there's never any like surprise that jonathan is going to baronolke for instance like it seems to me the obvious thing to do is that when his dad is incapacitated and jonathan has to take over that should be a surprise to the audience and he doesn't try to make that a surprise at all as soon as jonathan knows what's going on he's like well i'm going too with you and so on like it's he's setting and there's an argument over which of us is going to go and then his dad is incapacitated um yeah and he's trying to keep it secret from the russians because the russians know they're going to send an american to try and you know, win over. In this case, it's a right of way uh, for a railroad. Like they want, if they can set up a base in that country, they could shoot at this railroad that connects uh, parts of the Soviet Union so they can uh, really harry their supply lines, basically. Um, that's the main thing they want to get to. And uh, so the, they go to meet the Russians at the Russian consulate and there's like a this giant, like muscular uh Turk Turkish descended Russian general brutal uh sorry we I I can't get his uh, Turkish name it's not available right now but he's uh, uh he's like a this, this absolute brick wall of a man and he starts having a whole conversation where he's trying he's to a, an Olympic w- athlete winner like he's yeah. won multiple gold medals and he's a Russian general so right right um yeah he's and like he's, the the biggest he's you know like uh, six foot six and like um, built like you know he's extremely muscular but he's also really fast and and agile yeah. and then and then like it takes several pages into the conversation for Jonathan to go wait he's the, going to compete against me in the terrible games like and the audience is going well duh Jonathan that was pretty freaking obvious <laughs> like it's how who else did you what what did you think was going to happen like it's 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 very predictable in that sense and they, and you know the main characters seem a little slow on the uptake because the audience figures this kind of stuff out there's there's a lot of stuff like that in the book basically um but it, I will I will give it credit I like the action writing I think mm-hmm. I, I think uh um uh, Moore's ability to convey, like you know, what's happening in a in a action sequence, a chase or a fight, um, he's pretty good at that. In, in a war scene, even um, right. like that, that all comes across as fairly um, exciting and uh, sort of makes sense when you read it. Like you can follow the action, which is not always easy to do in prose. Right. Yeah, and and uh, I I yes, I would agree. He's like he does have that pulp skill, and and also just like like pulp he cuts to the chase like he gets to the action parts and the either the mystery or the intrigue or the the plot is chugging along really fast it's a page turner right so he's got you like he's he's grabbed you and and pulled you along and yeah i agree the the action uh 
the action writing is strong. It's strong and clear. Uh, and, and it does feel like uh, Moore probably knew a fair amount about sort of weapons and the history of weapons and the history of some of these cultures, like how, you know, Turkish and Mongol cultures related to weapons and horsemanship and war. You, you know, like it, it feels yeah, like yeah. he's done the research on that stuff. And as you say, he seemed to have some actual back uh, history with this stuff so that, you know, he could like, he's, it's coming from something of his own experience, basically. And the stuff about Mongolian ponies and stuff and um, yeah. how, how they design their bows and, so yeah, forth. that was actually, yeah, there's literally stuff in this I actually found interesting, like, and again, whether this is made up for the story, I couldn't tell you, uh, but it really does actually feel um, authentic that he talks about how uh, the Turkish bows of a certain era were designed uh, to have absolutely the fastest arrows as fast as possible so that it could supposedly uh, knock through a couple of inches of bronze armor plating. Uh, and they were like almost as fast as bullets if they were shot from these very, uh, very sturdy, very curved bows that he talks about, which uh, the villain actually ends up using in the final, not the hero, uh, in the final climax. Uh, I thought that was interesting. I mean, I know that, you know, we always tend to think of arrows as like, if we've ever tried to use an arrow casually, it's like from these little bow and arrows we have in our like play sets, like when we're kids. Um but, like, of course, an arrow has to go really fast and be propelled at an incredible strength uh, to, to really do damage, even to just an unarmored opponent, let alone, you know, getting them into, you know, uh, people who are wearing armor. So it's interesting to think about, like, the advances in bow technology that must have existed at various periods to get them faster and stronger, you know? Yeah, and... Um, uh as uh, as we've mentioned there's a scene where the russians invade like with full force this tiny medieval technology having country and uh they manage to uh fight the russians off and it actually like it's a ridiculous premise but it's sort of the way it's written sort of feels almost believable like well yeah he he yeah he really goes into the details like one of the he like he talks about how they have fixed cannonry that can't be rotated right so it's like they know it's going to hit this one particular spot so they have people watching that the the most implausible thing to me is the fact that like the the this these the this these lines of defense are constantly being watched by people from this small country and that like they have people ready at you know at 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 a moment's notice to well, there's a reason for that too, I suppose. But like he, like he could tell he knew that was getting straining credibility a bit, so he discovered a, he he developed a reason for it for why they would be ready to go. Because like these armaments need people arming them to be effective. If the Russians had snuck into the country, they would have just been able to walk right past them, right? Um, yeah. Uh, basically, um, in the past, uh, a, a train crashed, uh, a Russian train crashed nearby, and. Uh, they got access to some of their technology, including a radio system. So they have radio set up, and the Russians don't know this, so they, they can listen in on the Russians' uh, uh, messages Yeah. to each other. Yeah. And Which this is, is um, we, we should be clear, this is a country inside of the Soviet Union. Like, the Soviets just can't conquer this little, I think it's described at one point as like a cancer inside the Soviet right. Union. Or, or it might not be literally inside, but it's like it's it's on the 
like right on the edge of the Soviet Union. Like it's within one of the, you know, like Turkmenistan or Azerbaijan, those kind of places. Again, clearly within some distance of Turkey. Um, But yeah, like it's, it's, and it's also like, like I say, it's, it's portrayed as somewhat medieval, although they do have some stuff that's modern. And even the people there think the terrible game is a bit outdated, but because it's so backwards, they, it's a huge part of their culture. Um, so it's a little bit conflicted about exactly how technologically advanced they are. At one point, they talk about how hover, uh, helicopters are shot down with like regular gun bullets or fired at at least, uh, which imply and they do have guns, right? Like they have. Yeah, they captured some guns, but they don't yeah. have many. Yeah, which they, is a- they. They only have a few. Uh, part of the, um, they are able to collect Russian guns at the end of the battle in the in the story, and so they. They're, like, prepared for the next time, at least, you know, with machine right. guns and stuff. Yeah. It's like, where do they get... They, they better hang on to their bullets pretty tightly, though. Like, you know, if they don't yeah, have they, factories they to make them. Yeah, uh, they recollecting their arrows after they shot them. Right. Like, they, they you know, that's it's... If they if they literally don't have any way to build or be supplied by modern technology, then, you know, collecting stuff, scavenging stuff from outside is fine but it's not going to last you very long and mm-hmm. and supposedly these guys are repelling uh russian invaders now i guess this is an unusual situation in the book that they get invaded by russia as the hero is there and that's not something that happens all the time they even talk about how like there are atom bombs that the russians could drop on them um and and have and have and that they have ways of protecting themselves by dick ducking into a tr- they ducking into a trench <laughs> ducking and covering um uh. Which was yeah, maybe that's a little hard to swallow. I uh, mean, it's possible in 1957 that seemed plausible and maybe was. I mean, that is how the people who set off the original atomic bomb protected themselves, right? They just ducked into a trench. Um, and there are certainly atomic bombs that were small enough uh, that maybe they wouldn't have a particularly big fallout. But like, yeah, it's it does feel a little bit. They haven't used hydrogen bombs on them yet, so right. And they do talk about which I thought was actually that made sense that they talk about how um you can't like they want this one black sand desert which they want is the place where an airplane could logically land and it's the heavily defended area and if they nuke that area they won't be able to land in the in the the country anymore basically like that's the obvious um reason they don't just nuke the place into glass right um and you know so you know they're like he put some thought into it but it it is a bit of the pro- the thing of like lampshade hanging like they're explaining stuff so much that it <laughs> it it you start to think about the problems with it in a way that like i don't think they needed to bring up atom bombs at all i think it would have been yeah. like i i think i would have just accepted yeah it's hard to invade right like sure, clearly it's a mountain country you can't bring in tanks and they try they parachute tanks in which i know is a strategy that has been used but of course because they have cannon they can they can shoot at the shoot at the tanks and anyway like it so it's a kind of like some of it is good that they've thought it through but some of it is like you explained a thing that didn't need explaining and now i'm thinking of the implausibilities of it basically yeah i i I think uh he should have avoided even mentioning atom bombs uh yeah like i have to say uh, jim kata's thing as silly as that movie is it does actually make it more plausible in a lot of ways like it's not that it's completely uh, like that's closer to how 
uh, geopolitics were managed in the Cold War, <laughs> oddly enough, through gymnastics, of course. No, uh, th <laughs> through, um, through like, you know, diplomacy. So it's like, it's this country that chooses to be, like, to play both sides, which a lot of small countries did, right? They played the Soviet Union and, and America off of each other. Um, and, and it's more a case of, like, trying to insinuate yourself with that country. Um, and again, the, the great game, the terrible game not being about everyone who comes into the country, but rather anyone who wants a favor from the con, uh, and it's part of their heritage. Like that, that just makes more sense to me, I think. Um, the, the book does explain it as like a, at least partially a security measure. Like you can't, you can't enter and learn their secrets without, um, you know, most people die, uh, right. trying to play the game. Right. Like, two people in history have won, you know, or like two or three, yeah. Yeah, a small handful of people have won yeah. in history. But, it, and and I mean, it's like, you can have a well-defended uh, insular country that doesn't like have to have this elaborate routine for every outsider who comes into the country, you know what I mean? Um, and I mean, I do... Yeah, but uh, that's the premise of the book, I mean. Yeah. Well, well like I say, though, like I like what Jim Cotta does with it better of like, it's it's insular people can come in and out there is some contact with the outside world but it's just restricted and limited and it's more about trying to win over the favor of the people who rules i i don't know i just find that a little more plausible than the way they've presented it here because like no one goes in or out of the country for thousands of years it's going to be a weirder place than what we see and and then but then to say like oh but they have radios because because a train crash you know what i mean like yeah. it kind of there's a bit of a there's a bit of a a, a, a a conf conflict there to me but anyway um i like he yeah, was trying I, to I build I, I i found the uh the way they set it up in the book maybe it's just the game itself makes more sense in the book because the oh. movie's version is just nonsense oh uh, absolutely yeah the, the the game is like the the highlight of and it's like it's it's something he obviously thought through and made into a big thing and it's it's cool um and like, as, I mean, they flat out say like hardly anyone survives this game because it is a, a very, it's a, you know, it's a decathlon essentially. Um, it's weighted, uh, basically every, all the warriors in the country are against this one person and they, um, uh, the, the, the player of the game has to first sprint uh, to, to a horse um, and they get a head start for as long as a cockfight is going on. So like as soon <laughs> yeah. as a, one of the cocks dies, then the other... Um, all the rest of the country's warriors can chase after this one guy and right. um they can choose to like abandon their weapons or they can you know to catch some speed and, and catch the guy and kill him or they can um you know it's Hold like back. a strategy thing yeah and th and as they point out like it's like well the f if even if you get the if you uh, beat the people who ran after you quickly and are probably very lightly armed the people who arm themselves who kept their armor can just hold back and wait for a while and catch you later on and like you've got waves of people coming at you the whole time and you have to you have to uh, shoot a deer you have to uh win a wrestling match you have to do uh, you have to throw a spear through rings right um, and the wrestling match is like the like no rules no holes barred uh and these giant guys like the lightest one is like 250 pounds and um they're they're all oiled up and <laughs> you, you have to pin them down. Uh, it does say at one point that um, you either have to pin them or you know hold them up, or you can pull down their pants. And I wish that actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
the, if the, you manage to pull down their pants, then you automatically win. And, yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's, if you can get their chest... Been Chekhov's uh, pantsing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, well, he, uh, uh, Jonathan ends up winning, because Jonathan, like they emphasize that Jonathan's just a kid. Um, when the, the, the general comes in and participates in the game, and he does win the game uh, because he's just this unstoppable, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger of a dude. Um, but Jonathan is able to win the, the, the wrestling match just by doing the pocket sand thing, uh, yeah. basically. He's able to, <laughs> yeah. you know, he doesn't win the match. And it, because it's no rules, he he's like, it. yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, he has to use his wits. And of course they do, like, again, that's another thing that you, you, you understand is being foreshadowed the whole time. Because they talk about all these, like, super mighty warriors. But, like, the, the general's uh, ancestor had been a, an honored, like, a legendary competitor in the game. He'd lost because his horse had been weighed down and he wasn't because able to get... Because he's so big. Because he was so big. Uh, and that was... And then he fought off, like, 50 men. But eventually they got, they got him because he was overwhelmed by people. Uh, and so you realize it's like, well, then Jonathan does have an advantage because he's just a little kid. So he can... He's faster and lighter, right? So that's, ex- that's basically how he wins the game. Um, yeah. And um, also... Uh, um, yeah, the, the general, once he wins, uh, his request is that Jonathan has to compete tomorrow. <laughs> Uh, and that he is going to be one of the people hunting him, basically. Yeah, because that's how it works. Once you win the game, uh, you you fight in the next game against the competitor. Um, and, no, you uh, don't. No, that's his special request. You don't have to do that, necessarily. No, no, uh, you, you do. His request is that Jonathan have to do it right away, mm. like when he's not ready. The next well, but, day. He, but he does specifically say, I want to, want, as I request that I will yeah. be one of the hunters chasing him, basically. Yeah. Uh, Okay, which but, I but it is he wants to kill Jonathan and then he gets a another request because right. also the person who kills the uh, the competitor gets a request as well. Right. Um. So that's you know that's what he's going to use for his his Russian but, right. Yeah. You know, well, he gets his spy stuff. Yeah, the Russians would probably have been a little upset at him for not using his winning the game to get the to request a, you know Russian outpost in the base. Yeah, Instead, but it's, it's personal it's his ego at this point. Like yeah. he's not doing it for ideological reasons, at least not. Yeah. You know, primarily. Yeah, he's doing which is it. Kind of interesting. I, I like it's like the Ivan Drago thing. Like it's you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well. His ancestor, as I say, was the guy who almost beat the game, and he's. And then we find out eventually that Jonathan's ancestor did beat the game and became the Khan, which is ext- and the the current Khan is descended uh, from him, which is including his love interest. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're talking about hundreds of years, yeah, ago, know, so they're not particularly funny. closely related. But yeah, it's it's um it is kind of funny that uh like uh, like that was going up over and above <laughs> to me like yes your ancestor did win the game like like you know not everything is about your ancestor you know yeah. like i mean they, they do bring up his family history and they mention this specific one who went off to mongolia to conquer something you know mm-hmm. um no it's like not they, that they doesn't set up it's just like yeah. to me the point of uh, the general's storyline is that he's hung up on what his ancestors did and his, his ancestors yeah. honor. And it can be about like, well, I'm a new guy and I don't care about, my, I mean, but they do make a big thing about Jonathan's, fa- Jonathan Burr, his last name's Burr. And yes, he is descended from Aaron Burr, sir. Um, but, uh, he, uh, apparently, um, um, uh, like, yeah, they have this proud family history of military men going back to the American revolution and beyond supposedly. 
Um, it's got that. It's this is why it's got a bit of a. It's got a bit of a right wing streak. This whole storyline of like yeah. the great proud military traditions of the the great men working for the American, uh, you know, the American way of life. Obviously, that's inherent in what we just said. It does take a surprising turn. I don't know. Should we talk about this? Like at the ending, the sort of twist that he he goes with at the end. Um, oh well, uh, there's some other stuff I wanted to get to. Okay, first. yeah, let's yeah, let's um, hold off for a bit. Uh, there's a lot of uh, symbolism about black ants, like soldier ants, um, and yeah. that their family is is often represented by black ants, including it being the name of the ancestor's ship. Um, and like yeah. he gets like a, what was it a tattoo of a black ant or a? Yeah, he gets a tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, at the end is um, he gets armor um, that has but... like a black ant symbol that like moves when he that like ripples when he moves. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, like you said, the whole, you know, proud military history and, you know, we're, we're born soldiers and our life is forfeit from the moment we're born. And if yeah. we get a respite, then that just, that just, uh, uh, temporary luck. Yeah. It's, it's fine, but it's also like, they're sort of this obvious, it's, it's funny that this was an era when you could, and cause like they talk about how Jonathan's going to Yale and they've gone to their family has been Yaleys for generations and all like it's it's very much like you know that era, it's funny how in that era you could have this sort of elite east coast wealthy established american family and you were supposed to respect them and revere them and like nowadays you're like oh what a bunch of jerk offs you know like <laughs> george w bush basically guy yeah. you're expected to, that he's going to win the game basically anyway yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a, a lot of it's based on like Turkish tradition, Turkish and Mongolian uh, traditions, like the 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 pony and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I, here's what I was remembering. Uh, one of uh, Jonathan's um, uh, things in the game is that when the because um, the general's horse is there, you know, uh, in in the second stage, and so Jonathan takes the general's horse. So the general has to go on horses that can't support him fully. Right. Which is actually pretty clever. Yeah, exactly. And it's the, I believe they're called Projalski's horses, which are real. Those are like the wild, the existing sort of the closest thing we have to the actual ancestor of the, uh, like the wild ancestor of the horse. Um, And that's, but they've, they're harder to tame, but they're, they have various advantages if you do tame them. Um, Yeah, Yeah. which is kind of interesting. The general had his own specific horse that was like a giant horse that he brought into the country. Uh-huh. Uh, a horse that could actually support his weight. So Jonathan takes this horse, um, and um, it's it's you know even faster without the general hold, weighing it down. And also the general has to ride on these tiny little ponies, and he has to take a spare because he he expects to like break its back, you know. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't know. There's there's some clever stuff. Oh with, yeah, yeah. Uh, with Jonathan's um, various cheats and stuff, which are explicitly allowed. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would exp- I would describe like that's the kind of thing that I think a lot of pulp writers and action like like middle brow to low brow writers of the this era, especially immediately after World War II, but even uh, to a certain extent before that, um, that's the kind of thing they were very good at. They liked detail. They liked you know plotting. Um, I mean, some of them were just bad, but like when they yeah. were good at it, um, that was the kind of thing they tended to focus on. It would often mean characterization fell by the wayside and there were, you know, thematically either incoherent or maybe not 
the best thing <laughs> thematically, but like they, there was often a fascination with sort of the technical side of things and how, how is something, and both in terms of like research, but also in terms of like, how does this work? How could you uh, figure something out? You know, um, even like Michael Moorcock, who's like the opposite of what we would think of that. Like if you read his very early pulp stuff, he's very, he's very engaged with the mechanics of how his, you know, pulp as fantasy worlds work and things like mm-hmm. that and to people like uh i mean i'd say ian fleming to a certain extent of course he was obsessed yeah, with like yeah. all the the stuff in his books and yeah, yeah though he had a lot of research failures um, yeah yeah i mean oh, yeah. i'm sure there's lots in this book too that i just don't know about but yeah yeah there's a classic um pulp writer I've, i'm sorry i've forgotten his name but he 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 was interviewed once and he just said basically i'd you'd flip if you were writing about a certain country i'd flip over to reference book and i'd learn a few facts about reference about that that country and i'd sprinkle them in and so it would sound like authentic and people would believe i knew what i was talking about you know and like yeah. that that's that's often the idea but some of them i think really did love the like reading about this stuff, even to the modern day, like George, if you've ever read the actual George R. R. Martin books, uh, like, uh, that he's, he's very clearly like getting obsessed with reading about middle ages, like including like the kind of meals they cooked. So he'll describe yeah, yeah. the banquets at length and like the way heraldry worked and the way songs worked and things like that. That's all in the game of Thrones books because he, he was interested in that kind of stuff and he was doing all this research on that stuff and it could be fun. I find that kind of compelling. Some people find yeah. that to be annoying. Uh, and beside the point, I find it interesting. Uh, you know, yeah, the, the next series we'll be doing, uh, the new stream cycle is, uh, uh, written by um, um, someone who did a lot of historical fiction and stuff set in the Middle Ages, and it's obvious there's a lot of research going on in there. Even yeah. though this is a like a um, fantasy version of it, but yeah, yeah. Um. Uh. So. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's discuss I, the the ending. Yeah. Okay. So, and I mean. It's it's interesting because, like I say, it's got first of all, it's got that very, like I say, it's very chest beating Americana type stuff. But it's got also that kind of weird, um, like macho way of the warrior stuff, which kind of, it, like on the one side, it can get this very like super toxic masculine thing, but then on the other hand, you can get into this weird spiritual element that sometimes inverts it if you know what i'm talking about yeah it's like how people in the west sometimes get obsessed with samurai and that like that whole kind of thing like it's it's in some ways it's just oh, they're cool and badass but then sometimes it's like if you actually understand the philosophies of like zen buddhism and the things that samurai learned there's sort of maybe a bit more of enlightenment that can maybe counteract that in some ways uh, and you can see a trace of that coming here because you can see he's really fascinated with this uh, these cultures. Uh, it's a very Orientalist story. It's very oh, much. Yeah. A, it's very much about the white man coming to this country and getting obsessed with uh, this country, and obviously beating them at their own game. Like even the Khan is like a guy who beat them at their own game a few hundred years before, right? Um, and um, but but even aside from that, it's you know it tends to other them as this weird backwards medieval country, and but it also has a sort of but they're cool. They're so cool. They're so strong and fighting off uh, the Russians with their, you know, medieval weaponry, essentially. And like they're, like they're, they're just such, uh, such proud and noble warriors. And it's that sort of respective, you know, like that noble savages thing kind of going on, you know. And so, like, it, yeah, that's that kind of what that kind of elevates it a bit from just being 
you know, gross and racist in that regard. It's still Orientalist. It's still not great. Uh, but there's le- legitimately affection on the part of this guy uh, writing this. And at the end, that's that's what's kind of fascinating because basically uh, Jonathan becomes the con. Uh, but he also decides, he very explicitly says, we're going to keep the country safe, not just from the USSR, but from America. And on the one hand, he wants to, like, modernize the country and bring in science and technology that they can use to protect themselves. He also, he, he's the one who explains to them that, hey, when you need oil, you don't just need to skim it off the river, you can dig for it. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, really? What? Yeah. Yeah. And they have so much oil, like they have more oil than Arabia. Yeah, exactly. They just didn't know they they could just dig for it. Yeah, and they know oil burns and is useful, but like you know, it, and it's funny how that never comes up as a reason why either the U.S. or the USSR wants to invade is <laughs> all the oil oil deposits. But um, you know, you gotta you, you gotta read between the lines a little there. Uh, but he does explicitly say, "Yeah, I don't want the U.S. to take over this country. I don't want you to be like." become a puppet of the U.S. or the USSR because I guess he's fallen in love with this country to such a degree um, that... Uh, yeah, it's he, like the John Carter of Mars thing. Like, he goes native, if you will. Yeah. And um, so that's actually interesting. That That's, like, right up until that point, I was like, oh, boy, this is really just... Uh, did the CIA write this book? Uh, but, like, <laughs> then mean, he gets... sort of did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's that's what's interesting about that whole era of... American culture like it was people who had worked in World War II and who like the the kind of people that we associate with like like the CIA and the military intelligence and and like the 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 traditional sort of chest thumping American uh you know uh military complex um that's like a type of person who's sort of born to it these days but like in World War II everyone kind of got shanghaied into this and, and roped into this and you had a lot of people coming in who maybe otherwise would have worked on a farm their whole life but now suddenly they're being set off and people who whose politics weren't just like you know gung-ho americana it was like right-wing americana they could often be kind of like you know intellectuals and 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 uh, scholars and uh, people who are more interested in in like a little more philosophical in a lot of ways you know if we've seen although i must say uh more himself uh was the son of a uh, military attaché and friend to uh, Teddy Roosevelt. So uh, right. he wasn't, yeah, he probably would have been in the military regardless, but. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's definitely oh, true. Oh, and he was a Yaley, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that, like, I, I'm not necessarily, but even if it's not the person themselves, it's the way the culture leaned. Yeah. Because it was like people, you know, they didn't necessarily, as we said, like, it's like, oh, have this respect for this cool guy whose family is these rich elites. But, like, there's still, like, it doesn't come off as, like, as toxic as it could have. Um, and, and yeah, like, it, there really is that that whole idea of, like, if you've seen Oppenheimer, it actually, you know, it seems like a, a, a left turn here. But, like, it is about how people who's like at another time and place would have been very much opposed to that kind of ideology, but they started working for the American government and the American military because they saw that was the threat that had to be done. And it kind of got woven into uh, the American military culture. And and so like you could argue at a certain time, there was a bit more thought and a bit more diversity and a bit more like high mindedness in that whole mindset uh, than as you would expect now, like nowadays where it's, 
not to get into it, but you know, you, you know the kind of politics we're talking about, where it's like you're a traitor to America, you want the terrorists to win, kind of thing. Yeah, um, I think there's so, a bit more op- more global openness, I guess, in the in the mindset that we're seeing here. So more about his um, Jonathan's specific wish at the end, uh, or yeah, he, he gets granted three wishes by the con. Um, yeah, um, but his, his request um, it's to s- temporarily suspend the the great game the terrible game so that they allow like scientists in and, and stuff to allow them to set up some uh, weapons infrastructure, including the atomic howitzers. So they're using <laughs> ground nukes. Yeah. Um, uh, to, to, to possibly, up, uh, yeah. To, to disrupt the train. trains. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which seems but, like overkill too, but uh, anyway, again, uh, I don't know, fifties. Um, but, uh, and so, um, and for as long as these uh, scientists are required there, they don't have to play the game. And it it, it does say that they have to, um, like, when their job is done, they either leave or play the game, and none decided to stay. Right. Um, <laughs> and, That's pretty understandable. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it also ends with uh, Jonathan musing that um, um, as long as this game exists, uh, you know, this country at this point can't really be conquered through military means because they have modern weaponry now. But uh, the game is still like a an input, like a, a way of coming in. So, there, um, and it mentions like both sides, Americans and Russians, are currently training up athletes to uh, to compete in this. Yeah. Which is, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's very much a sort of you are going to have to change, but I respect your customs and it's kind of cool and yeah. we should try to hang on to that as much as we can. But um, I, I like the idea that the games is like, it's a security measure, but it's also a security risk because, uh, you know, yeah. if somebody's just athletic enough, they can, <laughs> in theory, they can enter the con- in theory, they can enter the country and, you know, undermine it. Yeah. Although you have to be literally like Paul Bunyan, basically, to win this thing. But yeah. Um, so, you know, it is... It's, but it's like the point is. I think that he's just sort of revering the the ways of this noble people, you know, more than anything, and they should hang on to their traditions. Um, And and like, yeah, in the world of the story, you can see the logic that he's talking about here. I don't know if whether that's this is actually the best way to do it, but the fact that it's like, yeah, but there has to be some change and some some evolution, you know, is uh, like I I think I would have just made the game. Maybe a eh, as you say, you want to keep out uh, outside influences, I suppose. So uh, you know, I would have said make it uh, try to steer it in such a way that not you know, like the you knew the people who won it were people you could trust and who'd want to join you instead of just being like agent agents provocateurs from another country from another country or something. You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there's an easy solution for that, but because uh, I mean, change is inevitable. There's gonna they're gonna find a way into the country eventually, uh, even if it's yeah. just technological. You know. Yeah, and maybe not uh, casual nukes um, <laughs> yeah. on, on either side. I, yeah. I just, yeah. Again, it's it's I'm, like I thought. Uh, I thought the phrase "atomic howitzer," you know, because it, it's an actual thing. I didn't know about because I don't know anything about weapons. But um, um, I figured it was just like a a phrase, like it's a powerful how it's a powerful like gun. But no, it shoots literal nukes, tactical nukes. Like that's yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that that's pretty well. It's it's again. We're in the mid fifties. We're in the era of atomic weapons are cool kind of thing. There's a level but on that. It's also that you know it's. Uh, 
I mean, I, I guess it's before like um, uh, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and stuff. So, mm. yeah, I don't know. Like people were afraid that the yeah, whole world yeah. would get destroyed. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a, well, and it was also sort of well, we'll have better nukes, and therefore we won't be destroyed. But yeah, you're right. Um, that was definitely. Uh, it's worth noting that it it this is exactly when it got hyped up, even though you know the nuclear bomb being dropped in 1945. Um, but like it. The the idea of of like uh, nuclear brinkmanship really ramped up in the early fifties. It wasn't necessarily seen as something that uh, was a real threat. I think it's because the Soviets didn't start to get the new. It took a while for the Soviets to get nuclear weapons. Up till then, it was Pax Americana and we've got the nukes and so everything's under control. But then it was like, oh, it's an arms race. Anyway, um, but yeah, it's it's. I think that there's a certain, uh, as I said, he, this is a guy coming from the sort of the military background, so he thinks nukes are cool, basically. <laughs> um, Which is not the point of view of this podcast. Yes. Nuclear weapons, not great. Well, once again, the sun sets in the Black Mountains, and it's time to bid farewell as we rest up for the deadly tournament tomorrow. We have been Adam Prosser, the thrill of gymnastics, and Philip Rice, the kill of karate. Uh, we pay obeisance to the great Khan, Alex Ross, our producer and site host, and our final feast is attended by the mellifluous lute strains of Jack Furick, who wrote our theme song. Uh, just a reminder, we both have a Patreon, which helps pay for hosting costs and whatnot. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, illustrations, and comics, among other things. Uh, you can also bet on the cockfights. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice with one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or what-mad-universe.pinecost.co for the links. Uh, we're also on uh, Blue Sky at uh, wmupodcast.bsky.social uh, and prankster36.bsky.social and spearhavoc.bsky.social. That's right for you, right? Be- Spear yeah. Havoc, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, we'll see you next time. We need to start a land war in Asia. <laughs> <laughs>